Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Sabella, thanks for joining us today. Great to talk with you, Tara. Thank you for inviting me. I am. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to coordinate busy travel schedules to get this um, get this recording done. So, um, why don't why don't you start by just introducing yourself and um, and your firm a little bit? Sure, sure. So, again, my name is Sabella Kraus, and I am the president and founder of an organization called Sage sustainable agriculture education. And really, there's another E on the end, enterprise, because hmm. what we describe ourselves as an entrepreneurial nonprofit. We work both on our own projects that we develop, and we work in um, as a sub to other firms. But our basic mission is to revitalize agricultural places near cities and foster vital food systems that connect urban and rural communities. And we work in a number of scales. We work at the regional scale through frameworks um, that we develop and, and are, are invited to partner on. And then we also work on the ground on specific projects at the level of developing agricultural parks, helping to develop wholesale food centers, and that kind of thing. And we work sort of in between at sub-regional scales. And, and our basic approach is to develop what we say big vision ideas and implement them on the ground through collaboration with lots of different kinds of stakeholders. Yeah, and you and I, we were, we were this, I met you when we were both Wallace um, Center fellows and, and um, last year. And one of the things that just was so impressive to me about you and your work is your ability to look at this very large scale. I think, I think there aren't a lot of people I run into who have that ability. I think there are a lot of people thinking about food systems on a bigger scale. I find what happens is that sometimes that focus can be on the two ends of the food supply chain. It can be on issues around agriculture, farmland protection, um, access for new farmers and beginning farmers, all the way to the other side where there are issues of food security and food access, both hugely important issues. But what sometimes gets much less attention paid to it is the business of food, Mm -hmm. um, which is the whole supply chain, which I know you work very closely on, um, um, in between um, the the production part and then the end consumer part. And um, I, I think... You know, I think the basic idea is food, certainly even in the Bay Area, the foodie conscious Bay Area, food gets really taken for granted. The whole food and agricultural system, I should say, gets sort of taken for granted. So one way to try to draw greater attention to it is to say, well, some of our issues and approaches could solve other problems or help help implement other objectives. Um, now, I'll just give you a couple of examples. In the city of San Jose, where we work closely, they um, you know, have major goals to have diverse economic development and authenticity and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, there's a sense sometimes that in the rush for everyone to make such a focus on technology, they've kind of forgotten about some of the roots as being one of the major fruit production regions in the country. And so that feels part of the past. But in fact, through reports we do, such as the San Jose Food Works, we point out that their food system or food sectors actually make huge contributions economically to a lot of different goals, to the diverse economic development goals, of course, to authenticity. I mean, San Jose is a city which is the sixth most diverse in the country. Um, but again, that's sort of hidden in place, plain sight. So we try to elevate um, what both those assets are, what they, what the needs are. So the city, uh, in this instance, at the city scale, looks at more closely what kind of investments are needed in across the food sectors to help realize other broader city goals. And, and we're doing the same thing regionally as we're looking at uh, regional resilience um, in the face of both natural disaster and other longer-term impacts as we're looking at, you know, a long-term land use and transportation plan. We're saying not just where food and agriculture should, be, should, should fit in, but how they, too, can be part of the solutions to other things the region is grappling with. Right. So if I, if I, I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but it, it, it seems to me like you, you, when you say elevate, you do, you look at data and help people understand the landscape as it exists right now using the data. And then you're making, helping people make the connections back to, as you said, economic development activities, right? That it isn't just this data about local food systems. It has connections to economic well, activity in the community. Absolutely. Um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you know. One uh, one little example is I was talking recently to a produce wholesaler. Um, in the, again, in the city of San Jose, and uh, they were saying, you know, the city doesn't really care about us. Mm-hmm. We just service hundreds of food trucks. And, of course, in San Jose, like in many cities, the whole idea of the food truck culture is hugely important in defining public spaces and who people are and the kind of diversity of culinary choices. But, again, those food trucks depend on having a commissary, places to get where they can get you know, do their cleaning and places where they can get their their food supplies. So you, know, you need to help sometimes draw the attention of cities <clears throat> to the fact that the food truck doesn't just materialize in the plaza at 11.30 a.m., but it also is part of a, a, a set of infrastructure um, needs that, that attention is needed for. I mean, I think right. there's a... Yeah. And especially, I would think, in, in places like San Jose, where um, real estate, I'm assuming, is super expensive and lease rates would be expensive. And so it's going to take a bit of effort on the part of the city to make sure that some of these infrastructure, you know, like a, like a distribution hub or something can can happen, right, to support things like food trucks. It is It is really a challenge because there is definitely kind of a, a practice, I would say, of the highest and best use sure. um, across the board. And, and obviously food is far 
less elastic, far, far less, much more inelastic in mm-hmm. terms of its prices than a lot of other tech kind of um, manufacturing and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it's a bit tough because, um, you know, where is the intervention come? I mean, the developers are need incentives or they need programs to try to, to even begin to entertain this sort of idea. And I'll give you another example. Um, the city recently sort of put up for an exploratory, exploratory RFP request for, for qualifications, really, a site. But one of, the, one of the requirements for the program for this 160-acre site in an industrial part of San Jose was, A, that housing was not to be part of the development, hmm. and, B, that the jobs needed to be geared to people who didn't necessarily have college applic- uh, uh, college degrees. And so that right away, by putting out a program like that, that, again, sort of narrowed the scope. And, in fact, some of the proposals that were developed for that absolutely included a wide range of agricultural production with some focus on indoor farming and that sort of thing, and agricultural processing, agricultural um, I mean, food processing, food distribution, and also room to to look about this in a new way, room for agricultural R&D and food Mm -hmm. R&D. You know, I was at a a meeting earlier this week at kind of a food hackathon in Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley. There are, I mean, dozens and dozens of firms popping up every, I don't know, quarter, I should say, looking at some new innovation in supply chain or new food production or new vegan or new plant-based proteins and new robotics and, you know, a different kind of um, AI and different platforms. And so, um, you know, that that is a whole cluster of businesses So um, that attention needs to be paid to. So, you know, the idea that you could sort of couple that future looking food development around maybe what's more traditional uh, food distribution, I think is a really exciting notion. It is. And I think it's, I love the food hackathon. I love that idea, like a food hack thing, Um, just because I I think, in fact, I was on a phone call this morning with somebody who called in, I do these virtual office hours, and somebody called in who is in Iowa Who's, who's doing a really interesting technology that applies to indoor agriculture. And we were talking about the fact that there's like nowhere logically for that kind of tech company to go right now because tech, it's not a software app. Like they still have to, there's software involved, but they still have to grow plants, right? And plants right. grow as fast as they grow and and they need infrastructure for that. And so that the just the way from a financial perspective and every other perspective, how that tech company is going to grow is different. And we don't have a natural place where, is there an accelerator where somebody would actually understand this? And the answer is no. So what an opportunity to have that kind of a, 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 a physical place that could could be a home for this kind of innovation. Absolutely. There are a few accelerators propping up. Um, one that comes to mind is Food System 6, you may have um, mm, come across, mm-hmm. but they have, I think they're now maybe have their third cohort, and um, some of the businesses that they have helped 
to sort of incubate are really doing well. So nice. Um, I think uh, you're you're right on it. There's a, definitely a need for these kinds of accelerators. Right, right. Well, and you know, in tech, the, the we, there's developed this infrastructure for helping groom growing businesses. Right, so accelerators and 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 pitch events and all that kind of stuff. And and mm-hmm. yep. we just don't haven't really actively applied that to ag and food yet ag tech and mm-hmm. food so so um is this uh, this uh, this is a pretty big acreage in california is that is the city involved in the purchase of that or who owns well, that mean, right you're now you're talking about the one that i the one that i mentioned yeah in san jose yeah yeah uh, this, it's, it's city-owned land actually, it is so okay trying to figure out what the program should be for it mm-hmm. um but before they put out a kind of full-fledged RFP, RFP. Right, I got it. Um, and, uh, you know, it adjoins burrowing owl habitat, so there's those complications. Oh, sure. And, um, it's probably about 20 feet above sea level, 25, <laughs> 30 feet above sea level. All right. Those complications. Um, nothing seems simple out here. And, oh, my goodness, I mean, the congestion here is, really mm-hmm. um, gotten getting more intense by the month. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, as part of Plan Bay Area, there have been some future scenario planning. And, um, you know, one some projections have the population slated to grow by almost 100% to close to 13, 14 million in the next, whatever it is, 25 years. Oh, so my. It's hard to imagine. How does that work? How does infrastructure work? And, and of course, Along with those kind of projections are, you know, ideas to invest billions more in transportation, billions more in housing. And um, we keep putting our hand up and saying, oh, but wait wait a second, you know, let's really think about food and agriculture as part of this. We kind of look at how Mm -hmm. water globally, I mean, not globally, but as a public responsibility to deliver those things. And food, there's still kind of a sense that the market takes care of that. But, right. And we've come up with a couple of ideas, sort of going back to the thing I said earlier about um, trying to present a solution that solves problem in another arena. Um, so there's a lot of attention being paid, played both in the Bay Area and really across California to the need for more affordable housing because you have these companies that are booming but it's displacing a lot of people who work at low and even medium wage jobs Mm -hmm. in any event. um, So there we are looking at how can we build more affordable housing um, and often that housing is located, you know, it's transit-oriented, it's in dense urban areas, it's often sort of what's called mixed-use housing or sort of village-style housing. And it occurred to us to say, well, could we also think about including healthy food outlets in those kind of places? Could there be incentive? Could there be? Mm-hmm. We wanted to look at policies which could, or, or the alignment, I should say, between affordable housing policies and investments, and healthy food access policies and investments, and seeing, you know, could we bring those things together. So rather than looking at separate problems with separate solutions. So that's one of the things we're excited to be um, looking into. We're trying to find funding, in fact, right now to um, begin to take a look at some possibilities there. Because, um, you know, very often the way mixed use uh, sort of affordable housing works is the current 
financial incentives are all on the housing part. And so if there's a mixed-use requirement, that ground floor is sort of secondary because it's not really necessarily in the developer's interest to to put a lot of attention to that. It's really the, the, the subsidies are going on the housing element. Mm. So maybe we need is, or, I mean, that's really the question we're asking. Is there a kind of public subsidy that might be needed to make sure that we are including healthy food outlets, uh, as, whether they be retail or restaurants uh, or other kinds of things as part of that. Yeah, so, and one of the, I think one of the interesting things that I'm sure this is happening, well, maybe maybe isn't happening in the Bay Area, but around here, retail is really having a hard time. So we have... No question. Yeah. And for a whole bunch of reasons, right? And so I we see, we've got like... Kind retail, of, you mean, or retail in general? Retail in general, right? So, yeah. so we have the same sort of requirements here when you're building a condo in downtown Madison, which we have a lot of activity and apartment buildings. Um, first floor has got to be um, retail, so mixed-use development. And the they're building the buildings, and the retail is sitting empty. And that wasn't the case in the past, right? So I I think you're, you're on to something because there is going to be an emerging opportunity here, if you want to think of it that way, because I bet these buildings are not going to fill their retail space. Right. Um, well, it's tough. I mean, with the online and, you know, you know, that's a whole other separate conversation, our virtual world that we live in. Right. Um, and it's tough because you're looking at placemaking and trying to activate street levels and that sort of thing. And um, it is, um, you know, a challenge to do so in an environment where people are doing so much more shopping online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and. Get, and when the traffic is getting really bad and all those other things, it become there are just so many barriers to making the retail part work. And right, yeah, and then you're in a in these developments. I mean, I think one of the things that's really unique about where you are is that this housing, the the level of housing problem you have. Right, it isn't just poor people who can't f- afford housing. It's people who are are make you know middle income folks. But it's can. teachers, it's teachers, nurses. Um, you know, we we did some work of uh, our Bay Area Food Economy paper we did a couple of years ago shows that about thirteen percent of the workforce is in food and agriculture related jobs, but the average wage for those jobs is about sixty four percent lower than the average regional mm-hmm. wage. So. You know, the average wage in food service here is under is about twenty three thousand dollars a year. Right. Um, but so that translates to little. You know, minimum wage is increasing in many of our cities to fifteen. But you know, still, what the kind of the the, the simple way to state it is, you need to make at least thirty five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Sorry, thirty five dollars an hour to live in that $70,000 a year to live in most many Bay Area cities. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, no wonder the roads get clogged by people traveling two hours to go to work. Right, 
Right. My daughter went to UCSF Medical School, and she has friends. She's not in the Bay Area anymore, but she's she has friends who stayed to practice. And she told me that she has friends who both of them are doctors, and they can't find a place in the Bay Area that they can afford, so they are driving like an hour and a half one way. That it's is- craziness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. It is. Yeah, and then... So have you have you thought about or um, worked on you know how how um, I think Portland I can't remember what they call it like a green belt or something around right. Portland um, has has that talk of that ever uh, occurred in California? Well, uh, yes, in a couple of ways. So around here we have a pretty strong green belt, not called so. As, as one single thing, because the barrier isn't a single city. It's sure. this whole, you know, um, cosmopolitan area of, of 101 different jurisdictions. Oh, my um, goodness. Larger cities like San Jose, the largest city about to be 101, one and a half million, San, San Francisco, Oakland is the other major ones. But, I mean, we have, you know, advocacy organizations such as Greenbelt Alliance, and they help track all the different legislation going on at the municipal level for things like urban growth boundaries. Um, so that's one sort of advocacy side at the level of Plan Bay Area, which is produced by our kind of joint agencies, the Association of Bay Area Governments and the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. I mean, certainly all of those sort of incentives and disincentives that they can build in definitely direct all development currently to current urban areas. Um, and I think that's, you know, part of the transportation planning is to make sure that you can service all those areas that mm-hmm. are getting densified. Um, and then at the state level, we have programs, and we have this pretty strong Global Warming Solutions Act, which has uh, is funded by cap-and-trade funding, and within that, there's something called the Sustainable Agriculture Land and Conservation Program. Hmm. And they um, have both planning grants and implementation grants to help protect land, specifically at the edges of cities. And uh, so I was involved in a project uh, as a subconsultant a year or so ago called the Santa Clara Valley Agricultural Plan, and it basically took research out of the University of California, Davis, that shows that one acre of urban land produces 70 times the GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, as an acre of agricultural land and kind of used that argument to say that investing in farmland at the edges of cities is a very important way for reducing sprawl, thereby reducing GHG emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... Um, that framework, um, it wasn't just simply, you know, buying land or buying easements. It, it, it had sort of several pillars, you know, included a policy pillar, but it included an investing mm. in agriculture pillar. Just saving land is the first step, but making sure that the agricultural production is economically viable is another. Mm-hmm. And having a branding and communications campaign was part of it, so people are aware of all the contributions this sort of landscape makes, not working landscape make, not only in terms of food production, but 
all sorts of ecosystem services. Um, and then it's funding to invest in infrastructure. Um, people who work on the, you know, farmers right. need workers, and those workers need to be able to afford to live relatively nearby. So we need investments, for example, in in farm employment and farm worker housing. Um, so um, as soon as you sort of say, okay, the lands at edges of cities are important, um, you know, it, it's sort of a complex set of issues that need to be addressed in a coordinated way mm-hmm. to make sure those lands are vital. Right. Um, right. And, and you know, the degree, to, that's an amazing that to me because I, I don't think I've ever, I didn't realize that, that your state had, had embedded agriculture in that but to the degree that it has. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of this sort of nested range of policies at the state level, mm-hmm. at the regional level, and of course at the county and city levels. Mm-hmm. And another sort of victory um, for us locally has been there was this valley, again, I'm picking on San Jose perhaps, but San Jose is also an example of moving in the right direction for sure. Um, you know, there was a valley of 7,500 acres, very important both for agriculture and for wildlife values and conservation values. It's sort of a major wildlife linkage uh, mm-hmm. area. Um, and um, uh, just this last year, the city voted by two-thirds majority to invest in these in the preservation of this landscape, the part of the Coyote Valley landscape, for its ecosystem services value, for its, it, it was a kind of a public safety bond. Hmm. And um, the city of San Jose had had some pretty bad flooding in recent years. You know, you have these sort of storm events and drought, right, and all right. this extreme weather. Mm-hmm. In any event, so the idea is that this valley right at the edge of San Jose provides very important both water recharge and flood mitigation mm-hmm. services. And so... Um, leaving aside the food production piece, because that doesn't seem to ring bells so much, but public safety, boy, that does ring bells. Right. Um, so in any event, the, the citizenry voted to invest $50 million in the preservation of some of that land to willing landowners, obviously, um, as a kind of a public safety flood, again, water recharge, flood mitigation hmm. um, services. Um, of course, that by now, $50 million doesn't go very far when mm. land at the edges of cities has had considerable speculative value. Right. Um, but nonetheless, it's definitely moving in the right direction, and now the city is looking at its general plan to make sure that its general plan, which had long designated you know, thousands of acres of that area as campus industrial and then urban reserve for housing, you know, you have to change those zoning. So you mm-hmm. just shift around the expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to find other places to put those 50,000 jobs that you'd hope right. would go in that area, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but that's all happening, and that's super exciting. That is exciting. I mean, I was amazed in Wisconsin, I... I I heard about a community, a small community that had developed a climate change plan, and I was like, "I wish we did that in our town." Um, and it gets back to like, how are we going to handle all this water? We have kind of, kind of like the the extreme weather events that you have. We we haven't. It looks Bye. like we're going to be wet. Is what it looks like. So handling stormwater and making sure we have we have the space to do it is definitely something we got to start thinking about. 
And right. that's that's terrific and foresighted on, on behalf of the community, right? Right. Well, you know, it builds on 30 years of advocacy. Mm, right. <laughs> um, and then you're hammering on the economic side, you're hammering on this side and that side. And mm-hmm. finally, in some ways, people need that kind of reminder of a natural right. calamity, not not hugely uh, major but not mm-hmm. you know to 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 wake up and say right there 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 is there are these ecosystem services aren't just some kind of abstract concept mm-hmm. but they're really important right right and if we don't if we don't start thinking about this we're really going to have problems in the future Right. So when you work at the when in the broader level, so you you know multi county level, what what kinds of things are you seeing at that broader level? Well, um, we recently produced with collaborators and great kind of a research team uh, a report called the Bay Area Food Futures Roadmap, and we did that um, with funding actually from our local M. Um, PO, um, no, HBO, sorry, uh, Kaiser Permanente's mm, Northern mm-hmm, California mm-hmm. Community Benefits Program, because they're one of these very foresighted um, companies um, that is really looking at population health. And I think this is increasingly mm-hmm. what um, uh, these large-scale um, uh Organizations are doing in health because, especially their their Kaiser's invested, they're self insured, so they right. both provide insurance and they provide care. So they're really invested in population in health, not in treating disease. And so um, that health is not simply the health of their individual patients and clients, but it's the health of the community at large. Hmm. And so it's very foresightful that they've been looking at that as they as they really have been for quite a few years. So they were interested from that perspective. So what this Bay Area Food Futures does is it it lays out basically a framework across the supply chain from production, distribution, manufacturing, retail, food service, and then also consumption and post-consumption. Where are we today? What are some baseline indicators and metrics about how we're doing, and what might some targets be. So I think there are two purposes of this report. Number one is really to get this framework adopted by our regional planning uh, agency to say, yes, we want to make sure that we thoroughly include food and agriculture within our economic action planning, within our land use planning, and within our resilience program. And then um, we're also sort of looking to seed some specific efforts um, out of that. So, for example, counties that might use our framework of indicators and metrics to really help track their own statistics, whether it be how much Mm. food is going to landfill, um, how long the waits are in community gardens, how many... um, how old their food distribution infrastructure is. I mean, there's this statistic out there now that over 50% of our infrastructure for food distribution is over 60 years old. Mm -hmm. So that is a certain kind of call to action. 
So that's another place. And then I think there's some specific initiatives that we've pointed to there. Um, we pay a lot of attention, for example, to the need for affordable housing in urban areas, but then sometimes the rural areas get forgotten. Mm-hmm. But part of the viability of agriculture depends, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, on there being um, housing and affordable places for people who work on farms as farm workers, as farm employees. So um, one of the things we, uh, there's a foundation is interested in taking a look at this idea of, so what is the need, what are the best practices for housing um, for people who are working on farms? Is it on farm? Is it in community? Are there zoning issues and so on and so forth? So that's sort of one um one sort of example of where we hope that project will go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we in Wisconsin we've you know a lot of agriculture is still here. Um, majority of it is corn and beans and dairy, but we do have some fruit growing regions and increasingly the I'm thinking of one in particular which is a very touristy summer home kind of area for people in Wisconsin and Chicago. And um, there are cherry orchards up there, um, and ironically, people, you know, go there for the summer because the cherry orchards are there, right? Except that now we can't get people to pick the cherries up there, and there's no place for them to live. So, right, yeah, right. and so there's that is a great example of a place where the connections that you're talking about have not been made. That. I mean, I was talking to a farmer up there, it's, in, it's called Door County, and who was saying that he had somebody in the, the local um, government level tell him that we don't do agritourism in Door County. And, and you just want to go, what do you think these tourists are coming for? Like, why are they coming there? You know, it isn't because... It isn't because the climate is so much different. You know, yes, there's water on both sides of the county. It's a peninsula, but they're also coming because of the cherry orchards. So the economic the economic impact of the farming that's going on there and the fact that it, it goes beyond just selling cranberries has not, has not seeped into people's mindsets yet. Right, right. I mean, I know that working landscape... It's like, who's paying for that view and who's paying for that culture? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who's paying for it and, and who's benefiting from it? Um, yeah. And, it, and, and I think in communities like, like ours here in the Midwest, where we're surrounded by farming, we take it for granted, right? Sure. So it, I think it's probably even worse. So they were sure. talking about trying to put in, you know, a housing building that people would would have, you know, be able to stay in, but then they would have like shared, I don't know, shared kitchen and stuff. And it was like, and everybody in the community was in an uproar. So it's really, well, because they felt like I have, I spent a million dollars on my McMansion and then you're putting this. Right, right. And then you're going to put this in here, you know? So it's, it's, um, yeah, I think, I think, um, these these issues are really becoming problematic for agriculture, not just around cities in California, but other places too. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can just have a TV channel that broadcasts pictures of working landscapes. So if people want working landscapes, they can just turn on their TV and take a look at them. <laughs> right. The digital solution. We don't have to go anywhere then, right? We'll just have them watch TV. 
That'll exactly. that'll work. Yeah. No, I I don't know. It's it's a. It was an interesting thing in Norway where I was recently. Yeah. Where there the government pays farmers to be on the land, not just like a per acre basis. It, it's sort of a fee schedule, you know, for hmm. you invest in heirloom breeds. But the reasoning is that that landscape, a kind of a working landscape with sheep orchards and some fruit orchards and grazing mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, is very important in the Norwegian psyche as part of the culture. But so if a farmer and can't make it a living, so, you know, in fact, even though, you know, it's not a particularly cheap place, Norway, if the farmers were, if the farmers had to charge the price of the pound of butter, it would be much more expensive even. But I thought that was a pretty interesting idea that the cultural element of it was so important and, and Norway also is a country that is trying to make sure that it doesn't import more than 50% of its food through hmm. tariffs and other kind of means, and then they in turn can invest in what are new, what are kinds of um, enterprises that might uh, introduce some new things or extend growing season, that sort of thing. But anyway, um, I appreciated that. Of course, it's still not quite enough mm-hmm. to keep the young people who are staying on the farm, so they're struggling with that issue, but... At least it's a step in the right direction. Right. And that's amazing. Well, I suppose it isn't amazing to me, just given the Norwegians, but um, that that idea of recognizing that there's cultural value in this is pretty amazing. I mean, right. and when you think about it, there's that's that's sort of true in California. I mean, you do have a culture of agriculture in California. It, definitely. Um, but, you know, it, it's not as sort of tied to a single sort of, I don't know what I want to say, sort of specific nationality or ethnicity sure. or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we grow over 400 different kinds of crops here. And the fact is um, we're going to need to take a pretty, we are not going to need to, take a pretty close look at our whole agricultural system here because it's a predicated on water supply that, mm-hmm. by some accounts, are five times oversubscribed. Oh, In other words, you have water rights that are five times more than the current or little mm-hmm. alone projected water supplies. And um, so we're going to need to think carefully about where we're going to keep agriculture and where we need to draw back from agriculture and what the price of water should be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, are we going to continue to be a major agricultural export um, county uh, um, state um, and across what different commodities? So, um, you know, and I think another piece here in our Central Valley um, a lot of these towns that are in the heart of the, you know, this sort of extraordinarily successful agriculture, the people in them experience high levels of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. There is a lack of drink, fresh drinking water because mm-hmm. these towns depend on wells and there's a lot of nitrate contamination. And so... You know, there's, there's going to need to be a kind of a rethinking about um, kind of this balance between, you know, the agriculture industry and the rural townships and um, are there other industries that might be able to come into some of these rural towns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, as we look at that, at the same time, 
and kind of related, we're looking at how we've looked at rivers as they've channelized. You build all the dams up for up upstream, and then rivers run dry. And then when there are big events, then it rushes down the rivers in kind of channelized systems and hits the delta where they're, we're trying to hold things back with levees. So, um, you know, there's a lot of restoration of rivers. And if, as you restore rivers and say, look, no, we're going to need to increase the water, the water flow through some of these rivers, that puts you back in kind of giving the rivers room to roam or, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit more floodplain mm-hmm. area. And that in turn can help with placemaking. I'm kind of excited about this idea that, you know, what is the kind of the synergy between doing some river restoration, especially as it runs by some of these towns that have just been become, you know, kind of just sort of, the heart of this industrial agriculture, but if you restore more natural areas around them, um, can there be um, investment in different kinds of smaller scale economic development? Some of these towns, I think that's been another real issue that Mm -hmm. so much economic development is everything has to be scaled and scaled up and proof of, you know, proof of concept is scaling. And I think, wait a second, some things need to be able to function at smaller and intermediate scales. And the holy grail is not always how big it can get. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I think there are opportunities of trying to look at how we rethink the, the economy, rural economies of some of these towns, how we look at river restoration, and how we sort of look at maybe agri- some of agriculture retreating a little bit, maybe having some more local food system kind of investment. Anyway, um, you know, lots to dive into in all these areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think, you know, people, people, I, I, I don't know when this was maybe three, four or five months ago. Um, the, I think it was the New York times had a piece for that Lauren Summers wrote, basically an op-ed piece that said, well, basically, you know, economists really don't know what we can do to help um, the economies in rural places in our country. And I'm like, I read that. Did you read that? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I read that and I thought, well, we know what we can do. (laughs) We may not be economists, but we know what we can do. Um, It has to do with agriculture and the state of industrial agriculture, right? And what it does Mm -hmm. to hollow out communities. And then you don't have anybody left in the school's close and nobody wants to stay there. And it's kind of in this vicious circle. But if we're always looking for big scalable ways, you know, then we're not going to, we can't approach these rural communities that way. Right, right. Well, I know you've got a lot of issues up there in Wisconsin around the dairy and mm-hmm. the science of overproduction and low yeah. prices and yeah, no, and this that actually with dairy, it's a global issue. Um, that you know, the the dairy industry is not just a national one; it's a global one, and that we have too much milk worldwide. And um, yeah, so increase, you know, increasingly the the for for industrial agriculture, this is you know the cat is very far out of the bag. This is an international industry, so we can have policies or whatever we want to do with with tariffs and all kinds of problems but that we can't solve industrial scale agricultural issues even domestically anymore it's it's really interesting right 
It's so big compared to... So what are some of the solutions being looked at for like, for example, dairy in Wisconsin? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are are kind of scratching their heads. I think think what what has been interesting about this to me is that um, there was this sort of mantra that dairy consumption, it's, you know, mother's, second to mother's milk, right? And so uh, historically, as the population grew, dairy consumption always grew. And that was everybody's kind of visceral understanding. And the fact that that isn't starting to, that relationship is now disconnecting, really caught people by surprise. Because of plant-based milks, you mean? Or? Yeah, yeah, and dietary requirements lactose and changes, lactose intolerance, and, um, and dairy products being inflammatory, and not clear that in the past they were as inflammatory. So, um, the, yeah, so big, big consumer shifts, right, that are, are, are changing it. And, and so there was, we went through, it's like stages of grief or something, right? We went through denial that this was actually a permanent secular thing. Then there's the anger stage, which is why are all these plant-based pro, um, milks allowed to call them? It's not milk, you know, almond milk shouldn't yep. be co- allowed to call almond milk, you know, so there's that. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, oh, well, wait a minute. Europeans still eat like 200% more pounds of cheese a year than Americans do. Maybe we should be shifting into more, you know, cheese making. Maybe we need new products. Maybe the whole dairy industry needs more innovation. Um, so that's that's kind of, we're, you know, coming out of those early stages of grief here and, and moving into, well, maybe we got to fix this um, with some with some innovation. The farmers themselves, though, like you're a you're a farmer who's, um, you know, each individual farmer, then they kind of don't have time for all of that, and so they're. Uh, what I tell people, I use, you know, I do these, I do wacky agriculture, right? So it's people want to put a cheese plant on their farm or something, and. And I spoke at a conference this last year, and I keynoted at this thing. And the farms that were coming up to me to ask me to help them think through diversification on their farm had a thousand cows or something. Like, so this is now a substantial farm. So the, there's a sea change actually going on at the farm level where people are are saying, you know what, just being a dairy farmer the way I've been a dairy farmer in the past is not going to work anymore. Mm-hmm. Is is um is there gonna is there looking is it are people looking at the whole idea of regenerative agriculture and trying to go back to more animal and crop based systems? Is that part of, or maybe that's already happening or part of the dairy industry? I don't know, but often it seems like people have gotten pretty specialized. Yeah, no, I would say that that's not a mainstream thing yet. Um, I think um, I think it's coming, though. I think people, more and more people are starting to think about um, needing to, to think really differently about how they manage their farms. Um, you know, it's hard for if you are a bigger farmer who's in who's invested a lot in infrastructure to I don't know for milking, for example. Sure. Sure. Um, it's really hard now. You, now you have these big debt service overhead, right? To now say, "Oops, don't need all that infrastructure. We're going to just graze now," <laughs> and right. and oh by the way, we're going to have multiple species and we're going to plant, you know. Um, 
we're going to plant hazelnuts and mm-hmm. other or, things. And more right? of our own feed and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's just it, there's an e- there's a financial barrier to that kind of um, change that is going to make it very difficult for a lot of these farms to transition to systems like well, yeah, that. Maybe we need, you know, we have subsidies for production, for producing. We have subsidies for not producing. But when they, maybe we need subsidies for decommissioning. We do, yeah. Stranded assets, right? We're going to have those with power plants. Um, it, it's the same thing, right? So, um, so helping people transition to these new systems that would be more um, regenerative and um, carbon sequestering and things. Um, um, talk about ecosystem services, right? Um, they're going to need financial help to make those transitions. Their businesses can't do it on their own. And do you think that needs to happen or can happen at the federal level, state level? Boy, it would be great if it happened at the federal level. Um, I, you know, I travel around the country doing the, these boot camps and things that I do, and I I don't, I wish I could say that I, I was running into states where they seemed to get it and they were really jumping on the bandwagon with this kind of stuff. I, that's not the norm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I think... A, yeah. A lot of folks have said, let's really look at agriculture and food more substantially as part of these some of these Green New Deal platforms. Mm-hmm. I think there's tremendous opportunity in there um, to bring the rural perspective to the Green New Deal because in some ways it seems like it's had a pretty strong urban focus. So mm-hmm. I think there's quite a few people through the National Sustainable Ag Coalition and mm-hmm. others that are trying to look at what that platform needs to be. So I think your kind of perspective on that is really important. Like what what might some policies look like? Yeah, boy, these transitions you just described. Yeah, boy, I would love to be engaged with that because it 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 to you know we kind of. Um, cook up these ideas and then assume that farmers are going to be able to make these changes and 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 then get mad because we think that they don't want to make them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's actually not, I mean, sometimes that's true, but that's not always true. There's some very pragmatic reasons for them why it's hard of financially, course. impossible financially. So they're really you know, trapped. Yeah. I mean, some firms are investing with General Mills, Cliff Bar, et cetera, are investing in helping their the people they buy from, their suppliers, make transition. So I think there's some leadership there, but, you know, that's obviously a small minority. Right, right. And, and, and you know, in agriculture, what the USDA decides to support makes a big difference. Um, it's, you know, there are, aren't a lot of sources of capital in agriculture, so what the USDA is doing really has a disproportionate impact on what this sector does, if that makes sense. So we do, oh. yeah, we do need them. We do, we do need the federal level to get engaged with this. No question, no question. Well, I'm also excited, you know, we, we chatted for a moment at the beginning about our connection through the Regional Food Economies Fellowship. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like there also, uh, there's also a potential for people working in different regions to have a network where we regularly get together and some share best practices and ways we can work, whether it's coordinating for policy change at the federal level or sharing what's being done at the state level or best examples from businesses. So 
I hope we can continue to do that. Oh, me too. Me too. Because I think in the absence of that, what happens is, you know, some some strategies get sort of popularized, and then for the next ten years, that's what everybody is replicating all over the country. Meanwhile, food hubs. Yeah, food hubs. Yeah, exactly, food hubs. And and so that it gets for the next ten years, we're doing food hubs. Meanwhile, the mo- world has moved on, and there were so many problems with food hubs to begin with. And so, as a business model, so mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we get kind of stuck. And in the meantime, there are these pockets of really innovative things that happen that 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 need a way to get amplified um so yeah and i try to you know i try to do that to a, a small degree here with with edible alpha um as a as a just a medium to get good stories out there for great projects that i think should be thought about and replicated um but having a network of people who are working in this area and that gets together on a on a routine basis would be really valuable, I would think. Well, we should try to make that happen. Yes. <laughs> so, have we? We've covered a ton of ground. Have we missed anything? You know, maybe just this is sort of both a separate idea, but also maybe a way of wrapping up some of what we've been talking about. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the places where we're trying to get food and ag much more substantially represented um, or, or looked at is through our regional resilience programming. So mm-hmm. um, we really we need to plan ahead um, both, like, for example, in the Bay Area with natural disasters, earthquakes, and that kind of thing, which can be pretty shattering to the region's function and economy. Mm. Food and ag aren't really considered. Um, food supply... Um, safety, food safety, all these sorts of things. So, um, you know, in the short term, we're trying to get support and funding to look deeply at food supply as um, as part of the resilience planning. That kind of relates to these other ideas where we feel like we need to look at um, food goods movement and food distribution and manufacturing clusters. I mean, the Bay Area, we have 10 million people a day who we, I mean, population of about eight plus visitors and so on. So that's about 10 million people throughout the Bay Area that eat, let's say, two, three times a day. That's a lot of food being moved around. Mm-hmm. And what does disruption to that look like, both from a natural shock and are we prepared for that? And how do we plan for kind of uncertainties, political, economic, you know, down the road, 20, 30 years? So um, it's... It, um, it's one of those things that uh, how can we get more attention to this investment short of natural disasters that make everybody realize, oh, my goodness, we didn't think about this or plan for that. So I, I think that's one of the main areas we're going to be focusing um, as a kind of the bigger picture yeah. Uh, story. Yeah, there's um, I, I the Hurricane Sandy when it hit New York. Just um, what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is a great example. Um, and and a year later, the food bank of New York was still distributing um, not just food but other things on behalf of the Red Cross because after that, um, after Hurricane Sandy, the food bank of New York had has these little trucks that they are. That is a brilliant organization, right? When you think about them supplying food pantries and in all five boroughs of Manhattan, right? Five little islands. Um, 
Um, they were the only people on the ground who could get stuff to people. And when you think about that, that's just shocking, right? Right, right. I mean, there's that, yeah, you probably are also referring to this five boroughs food study that they did after the um, after Hurricane Sandy saying, okay, what is the state of food distribution and infrastructure? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, um, and they weren't letting trucks in over the bridges and stuff. Like, it's right. like, okay, so how are you going to get feed all these people? I mean, it, that was a was a wake-up call for New York, and they were lucky enough to have Bloomberg as a mayor who kind of um, jumped into it, solving it, you know, mm-hmm. two, two feet first here, um, ran into it instead of running away from it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that is an interesting, that whole, um, um, I don't know if you want to call it disaster preparedness or whatever yeah, planning. Yeah, I, in doing these boot camps now in rural areas too, um, increasingly I'll have a person, it's not like all of the participants in it, but I'll have one person in there who will be like, you know, harder times are coming. I, I moved to a farm because I needed to get out of the city. Cause I, mm-hmm. so it's like individual people are starting to go, whoa, we're right. like super vulnerable now in a way that I've never really felt before. It's interesting. Right. right. I mean, I mean, I think there's that sort of natural shock kind of vulnerability. But, you know, I, offer, I mean, here we are looking at spending billions of dollars on transportation investments. And we've kind of got this horizon of, you know, mm-hmm. our plan by area. It's a 2050 plan. So, of course, if you just think just try to imagine the political and economic upheavals that are going to be upon us in the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, seriously planning for food supply in there and decentralized um, is going to be a critical part of it. So anyway, it sounds like you, you and I are in the same place here of trying to sort of beat that pot, uh, get that bandwagon moving. And, you know, I think, you know, part of the issue is, you know, we're up against, Food being sort of taken for granted in a certain way, mm-hmm. cheap food being the predominant uh, kind of um, I don't know what to say sort of underlies all of it, all of unpacking all of the kind of uh, fake accounting in some ways right. that go into that true co- and go into cheap food. So, um, well, there's uh, lots of work ahead, that's for sure, and. Then- um, ton of work. Yeah. And, and so it's so great to spend time talking to you because I'd love to, as I said in the beginning, I love the scope of, of the, um, kind of the scope of where your brain goes with all of this. And, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking more in the future. Well, thanks Tara. Such a pleasure to talk with you and I'm really looking forward to keeping in touch. Me too. Yeah. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.